0: Chris Day, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, real well. Thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, welcome to Adherent Apologetics, everyone. If you're joining us, this show is brought to you by you, as always, with your support, patreon.com slash Adherent apologetics. Uh, today, I'm here with Chris Day. If you don't know Chris, Chris is a really cool dude doing some really cool stuff over at Rethinking Hell. Uh, before we get into what we're going to be talking about today, Chris, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? <sighs>
1: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I am with the ministry Rethinking Hell. We are a group of conservative evangelicals who've become convinced that the Bible teaches conditional immortality or annihilationism and not the traditional view of hell. And uh, we um, promote and defend that view, but also we try to model and encourage charitable debate between brothers and sisters in Christ on that topic. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, the seminary that Braxton Hunter is the president of and that Jonathan Pritchett is the VP for academics at. with them, I'll be doing uh, teaching a few classes, including Biblical Hebrew and Greek and the Book of Revelation and um, Christology and one or two other classes as well. Um, I just recently graduated from Fuller Theological Seminary with a Master of Arts in Theology, Um, having a few years earlier graduated from Liberty University with a Bachelor's of Science in Religion. Um, Liberty is much closer to uh, my, I I share an ethos, uh, or let me put it this way. My ethos is much more like Liberty than it is like Fuller, Um, and I don't want your viewers to think that I chose Fuller because I'm liberal. It's not. It's because I wanted to go somewhere for my master's degree where I would be challenged and stretched, and I was. Um, And I think I've come out the other end, um, if anything, more conservative than I was going in. So it's not the kind of liberal um, faith destroyer that, you know, so many conservatives think Fuller is. Um, but my dream is to go on to uh, to do an Old Testament PhD at somewhere like Cambridge or Oxford um, so that I can teach full-time one day. Right now, like I said, I'm just an adjunct professor, so it's just in my spare time. I earn a living by being a software engineer, and hopefully one day after earning a PhD, I can um, change careers and do full-time teaching Bible and theology. Uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest with my um, wife and four kids, and... Uh, I guess that's enough for now. <laughs> um, and then, uh, if, if there's any other questions you want to ask me about myself, I'm happy to answer them.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll throw some stuff in there at the end. Uh, but we'll kind of dive into what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so about a month ago, I, in case you don't know, I wrote a blog where it's just kind of three questions for uh, Calvinists or people of Reformed theology. Chris is one um, from in the kind of the, the the thought group of Reformed theology and. What we're gonna do is we're kind of just walk through these questions. Uh, in case you didn't read the blog or really know about where I am, my position regarding Calvinism, Reformed theology, things like that. I'm just kind of open to it, but I'm not convinced at the moment. So I'm just with this blog. The hope was just to start conversations like this one and just kind of figure out what people think. Um, so these questions about God and His nature and things like that. So it might be helpful, Chris, just before we get into these questions, if you could talk a little bit about like where you're at with Reformed theology and stuff like that.
1: Sure, um I am a five point Calvinist, um, although like Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, I call myself a six point Calvinist, in, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, the five points as they're called of Calvinism are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, T-U-L-I-P. And basically the idea that's captured by that acronym is that human beings are, in every part of their being is infected by sin and sin affects all their decisions that they make. Um, Unconditional election is the idea that God decides or chooses who will be saved um, purely based on his own will and his own desires. It has nothing to do with um, what we do or would do under any certain circumstances or what we would believe. It's we believe because he chose us, not the other way around. Uh, Limited atonement is the idea that Jesus died in the place of as a substitutionary atonement for the elect only, that only those God chose to save and not for everybody in the entire world throughout time. Uh, the I, the irresistible grace, is the idea that God's uh, choice to elect somebody will necessarily come to fruition in terms of uh, the elect's coming to faith in Christ. Um, in other words, there's no chance that God's ha- uh, election won't manifest in in the elect's uh, faith. And then perseverance of the saints is just the idea that um, Those who are saved will be saved uh, and and believe until they die Um, and, and of course, beyond. Um, In other words, you can't lose your salvation. Now, the way that these ideas are typically characterized and and the letters that that stand for them in that acronym, Arguably could be improved. So, for example, instead of limited atonement, I prefer to call it particular redemption. Um, there's nothing limited about it. It's just that what, what Christ did, I think he did for a particular people and not um, for every single person who will have ever lived. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what those five points represent. And there, there are those who call themselves four-point Calvinists. And um, typically they reject the the L, the limited atonement. But I affirm all those five, but the reason I affirm those five, or or maybe I should say underlying my affirmation of those five, is a sixth point, um, which actually I think is even uh, more—it has greater primacy. It's it's more important than those other five, and that is um, the the sovereignty of God, as Calvinists mean the word sovereignty, Um, meaning— god in my view foreordains every single thing that takes place in time um not just he doesn't just work uh, you know to bring about his desired ends over here and then over here he doesn't the entire timeline of, uh, of of humanity and of creation from the moment of creation into eternity future is all foreordained or predetermined or predestined however you want to call it by god uh from eternity past so um the fall was not something that God uh, was that caught God off guard, like he wasn't didn't surprise him, um, and and also the fall of Adam and Eve was not merely, in my view, foreknown by God. Um, God actually foreordained it; um, He willed that that happen, and that the uh, and that salvation would happen, and so on and so forth. Everything that happens in history is like that; it's it's willed by God, and necessarily comes about because he, God has willed it. Um, So in other words, I am what is properly called a theological determinist. Um, I don't believe in libertarian free will. As a determinist, I believe in compatibilist free will, meaning that uh, the kind of sovereignty that I just described, God's foreordaining everything that takes place in time, is compatible with moral accountability, human moral accountability. That's what um, compatibilism is. Um, So I'm a determinist and a compatibilist. And as you can imagine, that typically... um, uh, bumps heads, uh, b- bumps heads with people that affirm libertarian free will, which is the idea um, that either um, we have the f- we have the metaphysical ability to either choose to do something or choose not to do it. Do it, or as I think is a more um, careful and precise way of defining libertarian free will that, like say Braxton Hunter, I think would offer, uh, is the idea that the 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 ultimate grounding of a person's choice. Uh, is, is that person's will, it's it's not something that is determined by an outside agent, it's determined by oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, my view that God foreordains or predetermines everything that takes place in time um, is inconsistent with that view of free will. Uh, and so, um, And that, by the way, is not just Arminians. Very often you'll hear people characterize this debate as one between Calvinists and Arminians. But in reality, there's Calvinists, there's Arminians, there's open theists. There are people who like uh, Leighton Flowers who would call himself a provisionist or a traditionalist. Um, Provisionist is probably a better word than traditionalist. Um, I think traditionalist is uh, misleading. Um, But anyway, yeah, so the thing that, that... um, separates Calvinism Calvinism from those other views is this view of determinism that I've offered and predestination and so forth. So anyway, that's that's where I'm coming from. I'm I'm a six point Calvinist. I affirm not only the um, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, but also this uh, this meticulous divine providence of God by which He foreordains everything that takes place in time, including. The choice of you or my or me to embrace Christ and and exercise saving faith, um, which of course is predestination. So, anyway, that's that's it in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, thank you for doing that. And great overview of your beliefs. Uh, so we'll just kind of dive into these questions. I guess kind of the idea of what we'll be doing is I'll kind of pose you the question. You'll kind of give your thoughts, and we'll just kind of take it from there and go for a little bit on these three questions. So the first question that I wrote in this blog was basically the question is of if we are predestined to love God, can we truly love him? Uh, At the time I was thinking about this is the idea of, uh, I feel like, you know, I choose to love certain people, whether it's my parents or my friends. Um, But I think at a more deeper sense, I think the question really comes down to, is it really true love? If it seems like in a a Calvinist perspective, we're foreordained to love God. Um, So it's not really us choosing him or it's more of him choosing us and by default we kind of love him um in a sense i don't want to represent obviously what you believe unfairly and that's why i want to turn to you and kind of get your thoughts on this idea of if we're predestined to love god can we truly truly love him
1: yeah that's a good question and i mean the short answer or my short answer to that question anyway is yes we can and do truly love him even though our love for him is foreordained but to figure out why i think um that is the case. It would help to maybe unpack this question a little bit greater depth. So for example, what do you mean by love? What do you you mean when you say, can I love God truly under Calvinism?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think in my mind is kind of writing through this. And I think of this question, I think of the greatest the idea of like, what is the greatest possible love that we can have for someone or something? And I, and I, I think as I was writing this, and as I think now I think the greatest possible would be a free choice to love um, someone. And in this question, it'd be our free choice to love God. Is kind of how I so like, how, how I see it um, with this question.
1: But, 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 okay. But, The question I asked was, what do you mean by love? And you just told me, well, I use my free choice to love, but that doesn't tell me what love is. So I'm trying to unpack what What do you mean by love God? I mean, so for example, some people use the word love, and this is very often how we use the word love to describe an emotional sensation, right? Emotional feeling. But that kind of love comes and goes not only for our loved ones, but also for God himself, right? Surely there are times where you feel a greater amount of love for God than at other times. I mean, I know I certainly do. So I'm assuming you don't mean that kind of love. Um, I'm assuming that you mean something else. So maybe you can unpack that a little bit for me.
0: Sure. I'm trying to think exactly what's going through my mind as I was writing this. And I think that the heart of this question for me was is there a difference between in an Armenianist or a provisionist or whatever you want to call it, in a, in a free will sense? Is there a difference between that kind of love, where they'd argue that uh, we're not foreordained to choose God, to choose to follow Him? Um, and I, I see what you're talking about with like the question of what do I mean by love? It's a really good question and something I definitely need to think about as I'm going through these questions. Um, but I think I think the question is: Wouldn't love be? Wouldn't our love be? greater in a sense, um, if we chose to love God rather than him choosing us. And that's kind of, okay. I think that's kind of the heart of the question there.
1: Okay. So it's not so much whether love can be real. It's, it's whether a love for God would be greater in some sense that if it's not foreordained than if it is. Mm-hmm. Well, so the question I'd ask you is, um, uh, do you think that God uh, because you're saved and because you're indwelt by the Holy spirit, do you think that the Holy spirit is helping you to love others better?
0: Yeah, I would say so. I see where you're going, but yeah, I'd say so for sure.
1: Okay. So if you, um, so we're told we need to love our neighbor, right? Um, Mm -hmm. we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to love one another as Christians. We're supposed to, um, uh, love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think you and I would agree that we are able to do those things all the more than we would freely, to use the, you know, in the libertarian sense, because the Holy Spirit is working inside us to make us love those people, those entities uh, more than we would have otherwise. Is that fair enough? Would we agree on that point?
0: Yeah. So you, your point basically is that the Holy Spirit enables us to love better and more, in, in a sense. Is that, is that the point you're getting at here?
1: Well, that's that's the question I'm asking. If 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 we are commanded to love our enemies, our our neighbors, love each other, and so forth, and if we if we agree that that the indwelling Holy Spirit helps us to do those things more than we would have if the Holy Spirit didn't help us, then that sounds to me like um, God's intervention to um, to produce in us a love for others does not lessen our love for those people it seems like it enhances our love for those things is that
0: would you agree yeah i think i i think i'm totally tracking with you i'd agree on that
1: so then what would be the difference between the holy spirit invigorating us and you know um working within us to love all these other things and people better than we would have what is the difference between that and the holy spirit doing likewise to move us to love god better
0: so can you repeat your question here again? Just to make sure I'm following you right.
1: Sure. So we agreed that the Holy Spirit's intervention, in other words, the Holy Spirit, he does not leave us to our own devices, right? He, he works within us to love others better than we would otherwise. And I, and my question for you was what's the difference between that and the Holy Spirit moving within us to love God better.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think I it's totally, I'm tracking with you. I think that's a good question. Um, I don't know. It's definitely something to think about. And it's kind of like with what I'm going at here, I don't really have definite answers, it's just kind of things that I'm just kind of wrestling with I'm going as I'm going through. And I think that's a really good question and something I definitely need to think about more as I'm trying to figure these things out.
1: Okay. So what I would say at this point is um – just looking at the way that we're we're promised that the Holy Spirit would move within us to love others better, in the same way, that seems to me to suggest that if the Holy Spirit moves us to love God, that does not diminish our love for God, it actually enhances it. But the second thing that I'll say is, very often this objection um, goes down to something like this, or boils down to something like this. Without libertarian free will, we we don't have true love for god it's not genuine a genuine choice to love god Mm -hmm. but and and typically the substantiation for that argument will will be like a a love potion or something right um if, if you give somebody a love potion and that causes them to love you is that really love and my guess is that you and i would probably both say no that's not real love but consider there the two big problems with that analogy to what we're talking about firstly that's now falling back on that first sense of love which we agreed we're not talking about right um this idea of a love potion doesn't cause you to love god and love others in the way that the bible commands it rather produces a, a a feeling of love for somebody, right. And so already the objection falls apart with that analogy, because it's not analogous. But the second reason it's not analogous is because with a love potion or or, um, let's say hypnosis or something like that, an outside agent is um, working in time to to trigger uh, like you, you drink the potion, and that produces the effect in time of these feelings, right? It, through the digestion of your system, or whatever. Um, so it's just like a, a line of dominoes. The last line, the last domino in the line of you choosing to love this person, um, is just the last line of a series of dominoes that began with the ingestion of the potion. But in but when we're talking about as predeterminists like me, um, when we talk about God for ordaining things in time. And um, and guaranteeing that those things take place. We're not always talking about things like that. Um, Yes, sometimes God can supernaturally super, you know, intervene in time and uh, say, uh, you know, um, interfere with uh, the king's desire to sleep with Abraham's wife right we have that record of that in genesis or whatever um and and that kind of intervention um arguably could be similar to the drinking the potion kind of thing but that's only one kind of way in which god guarantees that what he foreordains comes about in time and we don't know all the possible ways in which god guarantees that um and and so what and so and this may not be very clear yet this I, this difference between the drinking the potion and the kind of foreordination that that I'm talking about, but an analogy that I have um, begun leaning on to help illustrate the, this difference is um, when we talk about God bringing about in time what He has foreordained, we're talking something about, we're talking about something similar to the relationship between the author of a story and the story that author authors. Mm-hmm. Um, if and I'm not talking about the process of writing it down on a page. I'm talking about mentally creating the story right? When the author of a story is not in the same timeline as, or on the same level as the story itself, it's it's a whole other dimension. And so the whole the whole storyline exists all at once in the author's mind. And when the author writes, let's say that the author writes a story in which Bob falls in love with Jane, the author isn't doing anything in the story to trigger that to happen. Right. The author isn't supernaturally stepping inside of the timeline of the story and um, uh, pouring a potion into Bob's mouth while he's sleeping. And then Bob suddenly wakes up and all of a sudden he loves Jane. It's not like that. There's it's just simply the fact that the author authors that this is what Bob will do. And Bob doesn't. We don't know. It's 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 mysterious. Uh, obviously, we're talking about just a story. But if you but if you if you uh, expand it a little bit to say it's not just a story, but it's actually a real world. But it's but the relationship between it and the author is the same as the relationship between creation and God, which makes sense because God is supposedly transcendent, right? He's not on the same level as us. Well, then how it is that God authors Bob lo- falls in love with Jane, the, the process by which that happens in the story isn't known to us. And I see no reason for assuming that just because the author is the one who's, who authored that Bob would love Jane, I see no reason for thinking that therefore Bob doesn't in fact love Jane. So when we, inter- when, when we properly understand, or at least come closer to a proper understanding of God's transcendence, and combine that with the problems with the analogy of the potion, the the um, the fact that it's a different kind of love that we're talking about there and the fact that um, it's not a series of events, uh, uh, it's not a chain of, of, of cause and effect in time, but rather a transcendent God is foreordaining that would happen. I see after all of that thinking, no reason for, for believing that uh, the love isn't genuine if it's foreordained. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is this, and then you can push back and, and or whatever um going uh, so going to that potion analogy uh some uh, uh skeptics of calvinism will sometimes say that the problem isn't just in the person who's drinking the potion it's also in the person who's pouring the potion or or giving the potion um how you know if if i pour a potion into a woman's um, drink to make her love me, It's not. Ju- it doesn't just make her love not genuine. It also calls into question my character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's true of God um, even on the potion analogy. And the reason is because the difference between any created being um, trying to coerce somebody into loving them through the use of potion or hypnosis or whatever, the difference between that and God is the uh, the motives behind doing so and the, the benefit for the person who loves the, the person. So what, here's what I mean by that. God's motive for people loving himself isn't selfish, unlike us. And number two, there's nothing better for us than to love God. It's literally the best thing that we can do for ourselves. And so if God foreordains that somebody love him, I don't see that as a problem with his character i see that as i'm thankful that he does that because he's making it possible for people to experience the a fullness of life that they wouldn't be able to otherwise so, you know so going with the potion analogy if if, a, if bob gives jane a potion because he is selfish selfishly wants her to love him and if in so doing she misses out on having relationship with other men that might have treated her much better well that's a big problem but what if um, Bob is the only man on the planet who is not a serial killer and a rapist. Well, wouldn't it be better for for Jane to love Bob than, than for her to love anybody else? Right? And, and so similarly, how much better that we love God than that we love false idols and things like that? And so for God to ordain that we love him and not one of the other things is not, in my mind, a a defect in his character or a problematic action. It's quite the opposite. Thank God he does that to anybody, because if he didn't, we'd all be lost, I think. So I guess so. uh, all of this is just to say, the more and more I try to think deeply about this question about freedom and love, the more and more I become skeptical of the traditional non-Calvinist objections to Calvinism based on that relationship. Mm -hmm. Because the more I think about what love is, the more I think about what what love for God um, does for us, the more I think about all these kinds of things and the transcendent relationship between God and creation, the more that objection just seems to vanish in my mind. And that's why I find it compelling anymore.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, We'll we'll go to the second question here. Definitely a lot of really good things for me to think about as we go through this, which is kind of the goal of this conversation is to find things for me to think and research and study God's word and hopefully for people listening the same as well. Uh, And the second question is an interesting one. I think it's definitely a lot more interesting coming from your perspective because obviously you hold to a non-traditional view of hell um, with conditionalism, which I think helps with this question a lot it's an interesting question is the question is would god be people for eternal damnation or in your sense for, for annihilation because um, i think a lot of times as I, as I think about this question it seems kind of interesting to think about the idea that god would create a person and then because and god was and they end up being um annihilated or put into eternal damnation and the reason they wouldn't is because god didn't I don't know the correct word you'd use to talk about the idea of uh, the Holy Spirit coming, the regeneration. That's what I was looking for. Um, So could you give a little bit of your thoughts on this question of why would God create people just for them to be um, annihilated? (sighs)
1: Well, there. Well, firstly, right off the bat, I would push back on your use of the word "just." Right? You said, "Why would God create people just to annihilate them, or in the case, or if I were a traditionalist, just so that they would go into eternal torment?" But mm-hmm. that seems to suggest that the only possible way a person's existence and life can have meaning and purpose is, or, or, or let me put it this way: the only, the a person's purpose is only in their Everlasting destiny, mm-hmm. and I don't see any reason for assuming that. I think that a person can have can, can have a purpose to their life, even if in the end of their life, they either are annihilated or um, or go into eternal torment. Uh, so, for example, um, there are countless people in the course of my forty years of life that have had an indelible, um, uh, irreversible impact on the on my character, who it is that I am. Um, some of whom, many of whom. Are not believers and will, if I'm right, end up being destroyed on the day of judgment, um, or if you know the rest, most other Christians are right; they'll they'll go into hell, um, and and that. The, the, the impact that they've had on me and on other believers will in turn affect the impact that we have on others. And so the end result of, you know, the church comprised of all of its various individuals and and how they've been shaped and how they've shaped each other and how they've changed the world, all of this um, has been impacted by even unbelievers whose mm-hmm. end state is to either be annihilated or to live forever in hell. And so the idea that, If Calvinism is true, people are created just to go to hell. Right off the bat, I think we're starting off on the wrong foot. So Mm -hmm. if we put that aside, then the question becomes why would God create somebody that he predestines or foreordains to be finally damned? Mm -hmm. That might be the better way to put it. And um, to me, the, the analogy that I offered earlier of an author and his or her story helps us to answer that question a little bit. Because um, how many stories do you find interesting to read that have absolutely no antagonists?
0: None. Right? None. Story. Right? Huh? It'd be a pretty boring story,
1: right? Well, now in this case, in, in the case of real life, I don't think it's God is just trying to tell an interesting story, right. but I do think. But the, but the point I'm getting at is that an author has reasons whatever those reasons might be and in, in the example I've just offered it's it's to write a compelling story um, reasons for writing the story that he or she does and many authors I think will tell you that the characters in their story are in a sense very real in their minds and they might even they might even write in the story a uh, 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 an event in which the protagonist is violently tortured and killed shortly before the climax of the book and that will cause the author great grief. And yet the author wrote it because it was an important part of the story that he or she was trying to tell. Um, Similarly, an author will have antagonists in the story to move the story along and will have reasons for that, including um, writing a compelling story. So the question then becomes, is it conceivable that God might have a compelling reason for for ordaining that some people not be saved? Um, And at that point, we can do very little more than speculate. Um, I don't think it's only speculation. Uh, So, for example, if we go to Romans 9, um, and and I'm not trying to make an argument for Calvinism here, mind you. I'm just saying I I think this hints at about the most we can answer with confidence to this question. Um, Paul writes in Romans uh, that God, this is in Romans 9.22, God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God... um, Arguably, if we Calvinists are right, um, he creates people whose destiny is destruction because he wants to sh- exhibit his wrath and, and make known his power. Um, and, by the way, to show what it means to be patient with the people that he does elect to be saved. So there's, there are aspects of God's character, who, as God's attributes, that are only able to be ex- exhibited or displayed because God has foreordained some people to destruction. Um, but I'll add another one, which is, and, and here's where it starts to get to, to be speculative. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and, and here, the question here, it's not a hundred percent on why God might create somebody to be finally damned, but it's about why might God foreordain any sort of, um, evil, any sort of, um, rebellion and so forth. And I think that, uh, one of the possible answers to that question may be that God wants us to emulate Him, to to, to act, to try and become like Him and act like Him. Now, keep in mind, that would include things like grace and um, forgiveness and mercy, right? Where we're called to forgive those who sin against us. We're called to show grace to people who don't deserve it. And we're called to show mercy to people in need, right? Because those are the kinds of ways that God is. But ask yourself this, is it even possible to show anybody grace or to forgive somebody or to show somebody mercy if there's no sin, if there's no evil, if there's no pain, if there's no lack, right? So I think it's conceivable that God foreordains the evils that we experience in this world, including the evil of, of rejecting God, um, arguably, so that it gives his people a chance to Emulate him to to exhibit characteristics of God that we that we wouldn't wouldn't have been possible if it weren't for the fall, Um, and so I think yeah so so I think that yes it it is um, I think there are possible reasons uh, both for why God might foreordain evil and for why God might foreordain people who are going to finally be damned, and I don't think that that um, makes God sinful or um calls into question his character any more than the author who writes a story um is doing something wrong when they write a story in which there's an antagonist who does a lot of wicked things
0: Mm. yeah i think i'm totally tracking with you on this answer like i I, as you talk i'm trying to look at it from your perspective and just try to understand and i think with this question i'm totally on the same page as you the the one question i would have is like would your view change obviously you're you're an annihilationist would your view about this question change at all if if you viewed hell as the eternal conscious torment as the traditional view of hell typically is
1: i don't think i would but that's i think in part because of the kind of the traditional view of hell that i held uh for nearly 10 years of my faith before i became a conditionalist um you know historically i think traditionalists believed in a very literal hell with literal fire. Um, You know, some of the early church fathers wrote about how the fires of hell melt the flesh off of the damned and simultaneously regenerate the flesh. So it's like being, it's literally being burned forever in fire, but never being burned up. Um, You know, and of course we have pictures of torture and all sorts of things happening as well. But I don't think I think a decreasing number of Christians hold to that view anyway. And I think I was in the in the broad majority in believing that hell is something more like being consciously separated from God forever. Um, I saw, before I became convinced of this view, I saw hell as something like a prison sentence for eternity. And you're in prison, you're in your cell, locked in it um joyless you know relationshipless for all eternity but here's the thing even under that view i still would have life i would still smell things and and i would um i would be able to think and i would still see you know i would still have experiences and sensations and so forth things that we cherish and i think fear losing when we die i think that's part of what it means to fear dying is not not experiencing anything ever again um and so for me, I think that the traditional view of hell, at least as I understood it, um, is actually somewhat merciful of God, even if it's foreordained, um, in a way that isn't true if God finally destroys the sinner. Because in my view, this objectively valuable thing that we call life, um, is, in my view, even that is withheld finally from the wicked. Whereas in the traditional view the wicked at least have that. They at least have that objectively valuable thing that is life forever. So no, I don't think that my view would change. Um, And arguably, because I think annihilation is a more severe fate than immortality in hell, arguably I should want, uh, my view now should make it harder to be a a Calvinist. Um, But as it turns out, it doesn't. So (laughs) that was a long answer to your question. Sorry.
0: No, no, no. I'm here to listen to you. So I I appreciate the answer. We'll kind of go to the last question here. Um, And this is kind of the question of did God create sin? Uh, So obviously you talked a little bit about this in the beginning. So I'd love a little bit more specifics on your view. I know this is a debate within perform theology, at least from what I've seen. Um, so what do you kind of use on the idea that is, is God the creator of sin?
1: Well, I don't think any Calvinist is going to say or can even be accused of saying that God created sin. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, sin, classically defined anyway, is not a thing. Um, it's a lack of a thing right? Um, uh, Pure being uh, in in classical theology is goodness, and anything less than that, any lack of that is, uh, any privation of that is evil. It's sort of like uh, darkness. Darkness isn't a thing, it's a lack of a thing, namely light. Mm -hmm. Um, Likewise, evil isn't a thing, it's a privation of goodness. Um, So right off the bat, God, no, God didn't create evil, but there's another reason why no Calvinist can really be accused of saying that, and that is we don't believe that God performs evil, does evil things. Um, we believe that God foreordains that evil take place. At least those of us Calvinists who are um, believers in meticulous divine providence. Um, and so, I think it's I think there's something illegitimate about saying that if God has foreordained that Adam and Eve sin. That therefore God is causing that sin or creating that sin, I don't think that's the case. He's certainly not sinning. Um, it's Adam and Eve who are sinning, and of course everybody that has sinned since them. Um, and sin isn't the thing; it's it's a privation of goodness. So I can't think of any legitimate reason um, for why uh, why a Calvinist could be accused of thinking that God creates sin. Now. We could be accused of saying God is the author of sin, especially given that I've just offered this analogy a couple of times of God and creation being like the relationship between an author and a story. But even then, the author isn't authoring sin. The author is, is authoring a story in which people sin. And likewise, in my view, God is foreordaining everything that takes place in time, including the sinful things that people do that in my view doesn't make him the author of sin that makes him the author of a timeline, of a story of a lot of a, of a world in which people sin and he authored that they do sin in the way that they do um and so if that's what a person means by author of sin sure i'm fine embracing that but i don't see any problem with that either um and so the, and so for me the the real question isn't is, does God foreordain that sin happen? I think the, the better question is, um, or, or rather, I, I don't think the question should be, is God culpable for sin if he foreordained it to happen? Um, rather, I think the question should be, um, if God foreordained sin, does that challenge his goodness? Is that a challenge yeah. to what we all agree is the unmitigated Perfect infinite goodness of God, um, and I have some thoughts on that. Um, if you'd like to hear them, uh, but the short answer is no. I don't think it challenges that.
0: Yeah, talk about that. I think I think that's what a lot of people objecting with some sort of objection similar to these lines. That's kind of where they're going down with this path. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you just talked about.
1: Sure. Well, so the first thing I want to say is um, I. Uh, And I wrote about this in the very beginning of my – I should step back for a moment and plug a book of mine. Um, I co-authored a two-views debate book on this very topic, on predestination and and, um, determinism, uh, in which my opponent is representing a libertarian free will view, and I'm representing the Calvinist view. Um, If people go to my Amazon authors page, which they can find at Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date, They'll find a book there called, Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Individual Human Being? Um, And I'd encourage you to get it. It's available on Kindle. um, And I uh, don't get much from it. So it's not about money. I just uh, uh, would appreciate um, people's uh, thoughts on on what I have to say there. But anyway, I open my opening case with an observation of how the evils, at least some of the evils that I've experienced in my life, are so much more bearable because i believe that god has foreordained them than if i thought that they were that god just left it up to people to do these evils or or left it up to nature to do these evils so for example uh, my wife and I have lost two unborn children. One of them we lost before we were Christians. Another one we lost well after we were Christians. And what I explain in the book is that, yes, some of the things that come with being a Christian helped us to um, get through our miscarriage uh, in a way that wasn't the case with our first one. So, you know, the fellowship of people at our church, small groups, stuff like that, all of that's true. The fellowship of the Holy spirit, all of that's absolutely true and was helpful. But one of the things that really helped us to get through that uh, process and continues to help us when, when the, when we think about our lost child, um, is that there's purpose in that, uh, in the miscarriage and everything that we went through, um, because of it, um, because God has foreordained it for our own good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that couldn't be true otherwise. And in fact, we've started to see some of the ways in which that is, um, uh, there was purpose in that. So years and years after we lost our second unborn child, or not years and years, but a few years, um, my wife went on a trip with a best friend of hers to Scotland. And while they were, um, on a bus tour around the Scottish Highlands. No, 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 they were on a they were on a bus from London or a train from London to Edinburgh and on the train they were sitting next to a couple and they started chatting and lo and behold, it turned out that. Um, oh, let me back up a second. They, they, they befriended this couple. And they, they were from the States and my wife and her friend were from the States. So they said, Hey, let's let's hang out while we're here in Scotland together. So the next day, all four of them, they drove around the Scottish Highlands together, they had a great time, they ended the night with a great dinner. Um, and they, my wife and them have, have remained friends ever since. Well, after their tour around the Highlands together over dinner, that my wife and, my, and her friend discovered that this couple had just miscarried their very first pregnancy the day before they flew out to London. Mm. Now, you can imagine that um, if it hadn't been for – oh, and, and, and when my wife learned that, she was able to um, provide some consolation and comfort to this woman who just miscarried because she'd been through it before. Mm -hmm. And now imagine if that couple had gone on this trip um, after the day after having a miscarriage, how could they have possibly um, been able to enjoy their time together um, if they if they didn't have somebody to go through that pain with that had been through it before? I'm not saying it would have been impossible, but I'm sure it helped that trip, Um, and and probably, probably they still to this day are able to help each other through when they remember the the unborn children and the time when they once carried them. Um, None of this would have been possible if it hadn't been for my wife having had a miscarriage. So I think that, and, and then there are other examples that have to do with human evils. So, for example, a friend of mine was abused as a child, and he learned to put up some defenses that ended up serving him really well in the military, protecting our country. And now that he's out of the military, he runs a ministry that is is meant to help veterans to sort of regain some of their humanity after um, coming out of the military and, and and doing things in war like killing people and stuff like that. Um, And, and, and to this day, the, the time, the things that he went through as a child have shaped him and helped him to help these other men and women that are veterans to grow and mature and, and heal after coming out of the military. So here's a case where this man is able to do really amazing things for God and for his people because in part of what he went through at the hands of some wicked men when he was a child so and 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 we see examples of this in real life all the time and in scripture as well it just seems to me that if we believe that god foreordains um the wicked uh to do what they do and if we agree and if we accept what paul says that god works all things for good Mm -hmm. for those who love him then it seems to me we can say even in the worst imaginable of evils natural evil or moral evil we can trust that um that God has foreordained it with good purposes in mind. Um, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to think that God just stayed out of it and just let somebody do pointless evil, right? God certainly has the power to, and he's done it a lot of times in scripture. If 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 God doesn't foreordain sin, then why didn't he stop my unborn child from dying? Or why didn't he stop my my friend from being molested when he was a child, mm. Um, he certainly intervenes all the time in scripture when people want to do evil why wouldn't he have intervened here um, and so a lot of people I think experience a t- lot of emotional turmoil precisely because they think that evil is pointless and and, and etc but because I believe that God for evil for good purposes um, I can trust that no matter how painful it is to go through there's something good good on the other end of the um, at the other end of the tunnel so to speak Um so yeah, that's that's my take on God foreordaining evil. Number one, it doesn't make him culpable any more than an author who writes a story uh, in which people do evil is culpable for that evil. And number two, he foreordains it because it enables us to emulate him in ways that we couldn't if it hadn't been for him foreordaining evil. And number three, thank God he foreordains evil because that means there's purpose in it, even if I don't know what it is. Um, whereas if he didn't and if he just left it up they left people to their own devices. Um, it would just be pointless and hopeless. And um, I thank God, I don't believe in that.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing and sharing the stories. Really appreciate your honesty through this. As, as we kind of run out of time here, I'm curious, um, is there any kind of like closing thoughts you have, stuff that we didn't get to, or stuff you want to add a little bit to before we wrap things up here?
1: Um, I'll just say this much. Um, I think that most Calvinists, and this is certainly true of myself, would say that we aren't primarily Calvinists or determinists or compatibilists or whatever word you want to use because of these issues we've been discussing. Um, as good as the answers, and especially the last ones, I, uh, having to do with why God might foreordain evil, as, as convinced as I am that um, it's better that God foreordains evil than He just allows hopeless, uh, you know, pointless evil to happen. Um, it's that isn't why I'm a Calvinist. The reason why most, if not all Calvinists are Calvinist, is because they're convinced that the scripture teaches it. Mm -hmm. And one of the most frustrating things for Calvinists is that when we get into discussions with our non-Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems like the last place our interlocutors want to go is the scriptures. Mm -hmm. I love the kinds of questions you've asked. I'm not complaining about the questions, but when those are the questions that are um, w- when people pose those as reasons not to be a Calvinist, mm-hmm. uh, before actually going to the scriptures and looking at what they say, I think they're doing things in in, in backwards order. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess what I would want to encourage people on both sides or all sides of this debate to do, uh, yes, let's explore these questions together. But, but for the love of God, can we please make yeah. what determines what we believe? what the scripture says, and not what we speculate are the um, philosophical implications of what the scripture says. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is important. We certainly don't want to, we we certainly don't want to affirm a view that we think scripture is teaching if it's illogical, if it's logically incoherent. But very often, what we think are problems of logical incoherence with position are just our own personal opinions and speculations. Mm -hmm. Um, And why not just put those to the side for a moment and get into what the text actually says in a historical and grammatical context. Let's let that determine what we affirm and reject um, and then explore these questions secondarily, but not primarily. That would be what I, the parting message I'd want to leave with our list, with your viewers.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I completely, on the same pages use, I, as I wrestle with these questions, I think the number one thing in on my mind is what does scripture actually teach? And I think that's a great way to wrap this up, Chris. Uh, just to close off, do you want to plug everything that you have going on? Like, I know you have Rethinking Hell, and I know you have a debate you're pretty pumped for on, I believe it's Tuesday. So just talk a little bit about what's next for you and how people can follow you.
1: Well, sure. Uh, RethinkingHell.com and, and the YouTube channel is YouTube.com slash RethinkingHell. We have a um, uh, every other week live stream. It was every week up until recently, and I'll get to why in a moment. Um, and uh, so, so Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern is when people can find that at that YouTube channel I just mentioned. Um, the college uh, that I'm the seminary that I'm an adjunct professor at is Trinity Sem Dot .edu where sem is short for seminary edu and if you're looking for a higher christian education but one that's affordable both in terms of time and money um edu is going to be a good choice for you and you know who wouldn't want to learn from people like me and Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett and like least least of all me but you know, maybe a little bit of me um So I'd encourage people to check that out and and check out the the YouTube channel that goes along with that. It's called Trinity Radio. It's typically Braxton Hunter hosting. Um, As for me personally, the reason why Rethinking Hell was every week and is now going to every other week is because um, I'm resurrecting, so to speak, a show that I used to do. Before Rethinking Hell existed, I had a podcast called the apologetics which is sort of a combination of the words theology and apologetics kind of smashed together um, and I really enjoyed doing that but I ended up no longer doing it after I started re- after I was involved with rethinking hell and after I started school and got really deep into that um, well I'm re- I'm resurrecting the apologetics not as a podcast, but as a YouTube show. Um, And so I'm this coming Monday, Monday, August uh, 10th at 6pm Pacific, 9pm Eastern, I'll be having the very first episode of The Apologetics. um, And people can find that at youtube.com slash The Apologetics. Oh, Nick Quint is in the um, is in the chat right (laughs) now. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Um, So I would encourage people to check that. That's going to be, like I said, Mondays, it's going to go back and forth. So this coming Monday at 6 PM Pacific, I'll be doing the apologetics the week after that, rethinking hell. And it'll go back and forth like that. And the reason why I'm starting the apologetics when I am is because it's the day before that debate that you mentioned that I've got coming up. And this is the last thing I'll plug and stop talking your ear off. Um, I am what's known as a preterist, um, not a hyper preterist or what sometimes unfortunately goes by the phrase full preterist. I'm, I'm a, historical preterist and orthodox preterist which means that i believe most biblical prophecies have been fulfilled in the past but not all of them most especially the resurrection the, the general resurrection of the dead is something that remains in our future just like all christians have thought since the beginning of the church um on tuesday august 11th at 4:30 p.m pacific time i'll be debating a hyper preterist named michael miano and what we're going to be debating is whether there will be a future physical resurrection of the dead um so hyper-preterists, because they believe that the general resurrection was in the past, they have to deny a physical resurrection because humankind has not raised from their graves. Um, and there are two ways that hyper do it. The one I'm going to be debating on Tuesday is is one of those two views. And um, if people want to watch that debate, I, there there are few topics more important, more at the heart of Christianity than the resurrection of the dead. That is the Christian's hope. It's not heaven. The Christian hope is not going to heaven when you die, even if we do go to heaven when we die. Um, the Christian hope is when what happens later. When heaven comes to earth and we are raised from the dead and made immortal and live glorious with God forever um, in a new heavens and new earth. So I think it's a really important debate and hyperpreterists are unfortunately able to get a lot of people questioning this central tenet of the Christian faith. So I would encourage people to watch the debate live or, or at least after it's recorded. And if they want to do that, they can find Eli Aliala's YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash revealed apologetics. And just be ready to tune into that debate on, like I said, this coming Tuesday, August 11th at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern.
0: Awesome. Really looking forward to it. Quick question here from Nick says, did God predestine the release of the Seattle Kraken before the foundation of the world?
1: You know my answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I before ordained everything from the foundation no, of the world. No
0: cool God can yes, no, no ordain the Pittsburgh Penguins losing in the first round. That's just cruel. I can't accept that.
1: That's pretty cruel. That challenges my faith in God. <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> Chris man it's been awesome really enjoy the conversation as always uh thanks for tuning in everyone this is it here in Apologetics if you're new here I encourage you to subscribe you can like this video you can follow us on social media and if you really enjoy us you can support us on patreon.com slash here in Apologetics Chris awesome conversation man really appreciate the time
1: thanks